Chad Johnson is the man to know in the Christian music scene, and he's joined The Antidote. Thanks for coming, Chad. Yeah, honored to be here. Thanks. I have to tell you that there's only been a couple of times where I've interviewed someone who wasn't a musician. <laughs> well, like, did you ever have the desire to start a band? No, I, yeah, I mean, yes and no. So I am definitely not a musician, and I'm glad to be one of those two people that you've interviewed that are not musicians. But um, yes, I, I did back when I was in college. I had all kinds of young aspirations for how I was going to tour the world with my really, really bad punk rock band. Uh, (laughs) It's anyone who knows me knows that the lack of rhythm, lack of any kind of musical ability, lack of musical talent, like it's it's not self-deprecation when it's just true, honest reality check with yourself, which is I just don't have a musical bone in my body other than the gift I feel God's given me to recognize potential in others. And uh, that happened to, to apply pretty well to bands. So, yeah. <laughs> so the reality, you're actually just like me, a music geek sucked into the void. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like the void sucked me in or something. I need you to explain. Why the connection with Christian music? Like, was this something you were exposed to as a kid? Uh, Yeah, I guess I was. I mean, I grew up overseas as the child of missionary parents. And I think that uh, at some point along that journey, I discovered music and an affection for music. Although at that time, none of it was Christian. And I did not even know that Christian music existed, uh, really. But... um, I had a a youth pastor that had long curly hair, like long black curly hair. And I remember thinking, man, that guy's pretty, pretty wild looking for a youth pastor, especially, you know, somebody should probably tell him to cut his hair, but, but I'm not going to do, I think that's, I think long hair is cool. So, so he, he was the first guy that sort of introduced me to what back then would have been considered Christian alternative music. Um, Bands like, I'm trying to think Bride, White Cross, Baron Cross, like Vengeance Rising, Deliverance, you know, all these really old kind of like more metal, uh, metal bands. But then from there, I discovered the whole, you know, the Christian music universe. And, and I was, I, I, had, I had given my heart to Jesus. I, I was like the 18 year old who was through with the drugs, through with the girls, through with like all the things that I shouldn't have been messing around with anyway and to discover music made by christians that that was like speaking my language and and looked like pretty much any other band it was it was it was amazing that sounds like my background too well chad we got to get into your music history because it's long and pretty extensive You've been active in this music scene since back in 97 when you started up Take Hold Records. Yeah. What were you wanting to achieve with having a record label? Uh, I think fun was probably the number one goal. (laughs) I didn't want to be working for a moving company, and I had already started a little side business that wasn't making me any money, but it was putting me in contact with with a lot of bands. Um, and I, I think I realized how many artists were out there who 
had a lot of potential, but were not signed to a record label. And I wanted, I wanted to help them. So, you know, yes, there was fun. I wanted, I wanted the, the opportunity to be a part of something bigger than myself, but, but I did also want to see, uh, artists growing and, um, find their sound, find their place and, and give them a chance. So, uh, that's, yeah, I guess that's really it. I should have you give us some of the names of artists that you signed to take hold, because I think some people might be surprised how significant they were. Well, they weren't, you know, they weren't nearly as significant in 98 or 99 as maybe they've become, but Under Oath was obviously the largest of those bands. And uh, it's incredible to me that they're still actively recording, actively um, working. And um, other bands were 238, um, Further Seems Forever, Me Without You came out of the takehold time, and so many really fun bands. They were just friends, you know, and it was a it was a friendship, tight knit, small community of people and artists struggling to try to find their place. It definitely was not anything sexy or fancy at all, <laughs> um, <laughs> not even remotely. But uh, well, you know, you've disappointed me because you left out one of my favorites, oh, Tantrum of the Muse. Oh, nice. That is funny. I'm glad that they are one of your favorites because Tantrum were. I would argue by far and away the most unique artists that I've ever signed. And uh, I don't know, there's just something about watching them that was always kind of, would kind of just cause you to be spellbound. Like, this is wild. I don't really even know what this is, but I'm into it. So, yeah, that's cool. I haven't heard that name in quite some time. Uh, I'm glad that we share Tantrum of the Muse as, as a common bond. What a sweet one. Well, that band really developed, I guess you'd call it a cult following. Yeah. But when you brought them on board, you must have realized that these guys weren't going to be a big seller. Yeah, I don't think I even thought back then in terms of sales. I think that, that I later learned the emphasis and the priority that selling records has and had on the career and the success of an artist. I think back then it was just like, you guys are doing something unique. You're doing something different. Um, I like how it's just out of the box. And, uh, and that, to me, that makes a whole lot of sense. Well, you had a five-year run with Takehold before selling the label to Tooth & Nail. Were you okay with that? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, Takehold was like a lot of my life, an experiment. And um, I didn't know what I was doing. I did not have any history or any education in the music world or even in business. And so it was kind of a lot of trial and error, mostly trials and error, you know, like, <laughs> but I did accomplish the fun factor and I made some lifelong friendships through that time. I think for Tooth & Nail, Take Hold was like the college education that was most specifically directed towards what they did. So it's like you couldn't go anywhere on the planet to a university that would teach you what I had learned in four years through just trying it and going for it and working with these bands. But I do think that Brandon at Tooth & Nail was, was a wise businessman. And I think he saw from festivals like Cornerstone and other places that some of the 
take hold bands were beginning to gain some traction and uh, that it made more sense for him to to bring me on than it did to continue competing. So even though I would argue we, there was not much of a competition there because we were almost dead. We were, it was like the whole thing was, was dying. I was in a bunch of debt and thankfully God brought Brandon and tooth and nail to me at, at the absolute perfect time. And then he went and did ANR for tooth and nail. Mm-hmm. What was the highlight of that? Uh, I think it was seeing all, not just one, but like many different artists taking off in the sense that like they were becoming household names, at least within a genre or like a style of music. And I think that the artists we were signing were on the same kind of like plane as other secular mainstream artists. And so it wasn't like, you know, here's this cool regular mainstream band and then like 18 notches lower <laughs> is this really bad knockoff tooth and nail band. It was like they were they were all performing at many of the same functions and events and festivals and um, tours. And I thought that was really, I think, both shocking and told a tale of how gifted these artists were. I've often said to listeners that In the mid to late 90s, that's when Christian music really became artistic, Mm. which was certainly lacking, I thought, prior to that. Yeah, I mean, I I can remember uh, coming across bands like um, Mike Knott's uh, Lifesavers Underground or LSU, or there there were some like pre-Tooth & Nail bands that I remember being into and remember being impressed by, but then it was like once Tooth and Nail came around, it was like, okay, they've just got it figured out. Like they somehow have cracked the code of what a really cool, really diverse roster of Christian creatives can look like. Well, Tooth and Nail was in its heyday at that point, as you're mentioning. Yeah. But then you left to form another label, Come and Live. Did everybody think you were nuts? Probably. I mean, I think I thought I was nuts. Um, but I really felt like I was more pursuing God's call on my life. And it's weird, you know, it takes time, in this case, 12 years later, where I can look back and, and go, you know, I'm, I'm not nearly as convinced now as I was then, that I was following God with as pure a heart as I would have credited myself with back then. I used to say, I have no regrets, you know, I don't look back. And now it's like, I don't know, man, I really have, it's, it's really hard to say whether I was doing what I should have done. And I probably still feel some significant confusion over whether leaving tooth and nail was truly the right move for my life and for my family. Um, I I find my passion most connected to projects. And when a a project either begins to show signs of slowing down, not being successful, or becoming more work or requiring more energy than what I've anticipated, then it's it's just easier to kind of like wash my hands and move on to whatever the next new passion project is. 
And it's a lot easier now to look back and kind of see some of that playing out in the departure from tooth and nail, you know, even though for, for years I, I held very strongly to the narrative that I, I was just like, you know, man, I'm just doing the right thing and, and following God's will and moving to Nashville and starting this nonprofit label to advance God's kingdom. And yeah, now, now I just, I just don't know. I've got to agree with my own outlook as a Christian, my journey has taken twists and winds and bends. Everybody wants to say they walk the straight and narrow, but yeah. often it is your faith journey that takes you on those twists and turns. Yeah, for sure. So certainly my Christian view now is very different from what it was 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a naive outlook that you can't help but have when you're in your 20s or even in your early 30s. And there's a, a very different outlook that you have when your kids are growing up, when you're closer to 50 than you've ever been, uh, when you've watched dreams come up and then go back down. You know, it's like there's there's so many different things that that I don't think any of us are really capable of saying oh man, I, I'm going to foresee that challenge or that like twist in the, in the plot, you know, 20 years ahead, because that's, that's how gifted I am. You know, of course, that's just not, not how we're wired. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot here. You've got to admit sure. that Come and Live had the worst business model. I mean, oh, absolutely. The music was given away or people could pay whatever they felt inclined to give. Was that workable? Uh, I mean, long term, not at all. But in the short term, I would argue that the model that we were pursuing as a collective has ultimately become the model. So now, I mean, it's like what Common Live was doing with music as a gift. We just didn't have the technology or the platform. The technology was developing at the same time we were. We just weren't monetizing it or or really aware of it. And so I think Spotify started, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in 2009, which was when we started. And then iTunes Music was, you know, beginning to do their their thing. But but back then, it's funny to think that we hosted a website where you could click on a band's album cover and then download MP3s of their albums or of their, their music. And, and that was a really crazy, like, wow, that's so, quote unquote, radical. But um, now all music is free. And we all, it's, I mean, yes, we're still paying for subscriptions potentially, but we no longer equate one song with 99 cents or with a dollar 29 or whatever. It's, it's songs and value are, are no, nowhere nearly tied like they once were. Once again, with Come and Live, you found some significant artists to connect with that. Yeah. Funny enough, a lot of these artists have been on the antidote for a talk. You know, guys like oh, cool. Levi the Poet, Showbread, yeah. Least of These, White Collar yep. Sideshow, Kai Kai. How was it that you were able to attract them to be part of Come and Live? <laughs> Taco Bell, I think, is the short answer. That would always uh, be worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it was two things. I think that probably it didn't hurt that God had used my history in music to serve as a confirmation that maybe I wasn't 
quite as crazy as other people might have thought I was. And then two, I think it was the community and the other artists that were a part of this that just made it very appealing and very attractive to other artists. Like, hey, we're, we're going about this. You can still retain all your rights to everything. You still own everything. You're not signing anything with us. We're not taking anything from you, at least not intentionally, and not that you aren't also willing to freely give. And um, the momentum began to build. And so I think it became progressively easier to recognize the potential and to see like, hey, like something could happen here. Like this is actually, it's a crazy idea, but man, there's like some really incredible artists attached to this. And this thing's gaining some significant attention from people. So I think that was the primary kind of pull for other artists. But it was weird, you know, it was a weird, some, there would be artists that just weren't interested because it just didn't make any sense to them financially or monetarily. And, and that's okay. We're not claiming that this is the best or exclusive way for an artist to move forward. It's just a different way. And um, it, it was definitely wild. <laughs> You know, with us talking like this, it really has me wondering something. Mm. You're a guy that makes things happen. But now, is this talent, is it hard work, or is it God-given? Uh, I would say it's it's 90% God-given and, and like 10% hard work. I don't think that typically what I've experienced has been that if I work really, really hard opportunities will come. It's more been like God has provided me with opportunities that I did not deserve, even though I'm sometimes a lazy ass and sometimes not wanting to work and so sometimes not wanting to invest my time or my energy. And then, you know, him helping me become more committed to working and to like, oh man, I got to get diligently focused on that thing, or I really need to need to figure this out, you know, but I think for me, God's given me a gift that he's also given my parents and the rest of my family, which is an affection and a connection with people. And I feel that we all carry a, a level of compassion for people that is uh, most of the time is genuine. And I think that tra that's really translated, especially in working with artists. And I think that I tried to be honest, I tried to be transparent, and I tried to just paint a real picture of what our relationship might look like and not necessarily spin them some kind of story that, that was completely fabricated and that eventually they would find out, you know? I get you. We have to get into the big news. You've resurrected a music festival that you first set up two decades ago. Yeah. So Furnace Fest is back. Yeah. And I found this interesting because Relevant Magazine titled an article about the festival, and it said the Furnace Fest lineup is a Y2K era emo Christian teen dream. <laughs> now, wow. I, mean, I didn't even know that Relevant covered it, so I, I have to go Google now. That's hilarious that, that they even wrote about it. 
I do get what they were going for, even if that emo label doesn't necessarily fit. Because (laughs) this festival has a big range of music styles. Yeah, I mean, I would guess what they're thinking there, and maybe their focus behind it is that it sounds a little more pitch-worthy or, like, uh, compelling to, to throw in the emo phrase, but uh, but still, that's that's cool. I think whatever anybody wants to call it is uh, is fine with me. I'm just excited that we have the opportunity to reconnect with people that you know I never would have thought um, would have been possible. You have to explain what was the motivation to start up Furnace Fest again. Um, I mean. I think at the end of the day, a friend of mine, now one of the business partners with Furnace Fest, had been fairly consistently, not annoyingly so, but but every once in a while would, at like major landmarks, remind me that we really should do Furnace Fest, uh, like a 10-year reunion. And, and then when 20 years came around, it was like, we should really do a 20-year reunion of Furnace Fest. And I think that when he and I talked about the people and the band members that we might not ever be able to see again here in this life, that it was kind of like a somber, old age reality check, you know, like, dude, <laughs> like none of us are getting younger. Like one of the friends I was really looking forward to seeing is the original guitar player for Under Oath, and he just died tragically two weeks ago in a car accident. And so I feel like that's why I'm doing Furnace Fest, because I really wanted to see the Corey Steegers of the world and hug them and say hi and let them know that they mattered to me and that I, I really loved the opportunities that I had with him and with them. And I don't know. I just think I think that it there's like a sentimental nostalgic kind of power that this season of COVID has all the more highlighted. This is man, this I mean, this is just so yeah, so heavy. Yeah, so I think that was I guess for me that was the really that was just the 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 compelling argument. You know how people used to say do it for Jesus? You know, that'd be how people would motivate you to, to like, you know, do whatever you should be doing or, or maybe stop doing what you shouldn't be doing. And, and I think that uh, in this case, it was kind of like, do it for friends and uh, do it for people that might need this kind of connection, camaraderie, old times of hanging out again and seeing people. And there, there's just, I don't know, there's, I feel like there's much depression, suicide, mental health problems. There's like so much stuff going on with so many people right now that the idea that maybe this could provide a little bit of a bright spot in somebody's life was like, okay, that's why we do it. That's worth it right there. That's the why. As we've been talking about mostly Christian artists, but the festival isn't all about only them. I mean, some are Christians, some aren't, and some used to be. So how did you make the picks? Well, yeah, the picks had nothing to do with faith, and the picks never had anything to do with faith from the start. The dream behind the festival originally was to unite two very isolated, very separate groups of people 
that I felt anyway, living in the South, rarely seemed to interact. And that those were the, the Christian youth group kids with all the cool tooth and nail bands and other Christian bands versus the kind of like normal, regular high school kid that's into all their fat records, victory records, revelation, you know, like whatever bands they were into. And those two things just seemed to be at odds with each other. And my hope and my heart was maybe by bringing a festival together where we simply celebrate the music that we do hold in common and the styles of music and, and all that, maybe this could be a really cool opportunity. So it really became a desire to bring different people together for a weekend and it and it worked and it was kind of you know I can remember a band like Dillinger Escape Plan who who were interviewed I think in Rolling Stone magazine and asked you know about their top wildest shows in their career and one of their top shows was Furnace Fest and the, and the little comment they made was like it was this random Christian festival in Alabama, but it was crazy as shit or something like that, you know? (laughs) And I just was like, man, that's awesome. You know, that's how it should be. That's the hope behind it, you know, is like, to me, what's always been most attractive about Jesus is that he was a friend of the least likely. He was close to the people that most likely any of us now would look at each other and be like, dude, why are you hanging out with that prostitute? You know, or like, why are you hanging out with that whatever kind of person? You know, we could nominate anybody under any circumstance uh, who we would consider to be the really extreme anti-Christian type. And, uh, and that's who Jesus would be super close to. And so I just felt like maybe there's a Maybe this is an opportunity for for Jesus to be close to people that he really loves that often, you know, don't get to see him very clearly. I got to say that if anything will ever tempt a music geek, this festival is the one. (laughs) Because Furnace Fest has this monster lineup. The negative is, is that COVID is here. How are you going to make it work? I don't know, man. I have no idea, actually. I think it's You know, I think it's one of those things where we're moving forward, trusting that over the next five and a half months between vaccinations and COVID cases going down, which a month ago sounded a lot easier to say than it does right now, because they're in many uh, areas, they're not going down, but there's still the, the hope is that that five months from now, we are experiencing a very, very different climate and one that is actually conducive enough to being at a large outdoor gathering where it's possible and, uh, and it can happen. So I think that, that there's, um, there's a lot of strong cases that are being made right now for events that are either have already happened, are uh, about to happen, or will have happened prior to ours that's a much smaller event by comparison. So, you know, it's one of those things where we've all just said up front, you know, if this doesn't work out for any reason, we'll just be transparent with all of our guests again and let them know for the third time that we're really sorry, but we can't do this safely and we're going to postpone and we'll, we'll offer refunds, full refunds for whoever wants them. And, 
thankfully, the last two times we've done that, the our refund request rate was between 2 and 5% each time. So I think what we've discovered is that the average fan coming to Furnace Fest has been looking forward to this as long as we have. So from the early 2000s, they've been looking forward to this. COVID is not going to stop us or them, even if it does temporarily cause us to have to reschedule again. We feel very, very optimistic at this point. Uh, But of course, keeping an eye on the weather, so to speak, and just staying up on on what the CDC is putting out and and, uh, how others are handling this. I think we're all getting used to having our lives changed on a daily basis. Yeah, Dave, you nailed it. We don't really have a problem in terms of a festival, like long-term, we just have a short-term problem, which is the potential that cases go crazy, new variants mutate, uh, other vaccines are pulled, you know, like any number of really unexpected or, or unhoped for situations happen. And I think at this point are, are exactly where you've just beautifully said, you know, we're used, it's okay, well, it all sucks. It's not what we want, but we've already been here. We know how to handle this and it'll work out eventually. You always seem to be making new milestones. What's the next one going to be for Chad Johnson? Oh man. Um, I don't know. I, I, the next milestone I mean, I I think that one of the cries of my heart has still been in the midst of a really confusing, really heavy, really frustrating time is to begin experiencing a freshness with Jesus again that I haven't felt in quite some time. I think that'd be a pretty remarkable breakthrough, you know, just being able to rediscover the priority and the passion that Jesus has for many, many years of my life occupied. um, And just kind of like hopefully me getting out of the way more, you know, just like I'm I'm taking a step back and let's see what God wants to do. But I I really, yeah, I really have no idea what's going to happen in terms of kind of like future plans. (laughs) I definitely did not expect being a festival promoter at age 47 um, nor did I expect my, my ministry come and live to come and die. There's a lot of things that I've not, not really foreseen. The one thing I would love to, to uncover is just a, a deeper revelation of, of God's heart for, you know, obviously for myself selfishly, but for everyone else beyond that. Well said. Chad, thanks for this talk about everything under the sun. Yeah, thanks, Dave. (laughs) This has been great. Uh, It's been awesome. I appreciate you letting me go off on a bunch of tangents. It's beautiful to connect.